This is Daryl Amy, author of Revenue Growth Engine, How to Align Sales and Marketing to Accelerate Growth. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, send me a connection invite on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Speaking of LinkedIn, this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? And the answer is LinkedIn, where business gets done. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. I'll mention more about that in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show, shall we? Today, we welcome Daryl Amy to the Marketing Book Podcast, talk about his book, Revenue Growth Engine, How to Align Sales and Marketing to Accelerate Growth. Daryl Amy is an author, growth architect, blogger, professional speaker, podcaster, and entrepreneur. After beginning his career in sales and sales management in the highly competitive office equipment business category, he began helping office equipment dealers train their sales teams and develop marketing and sales plans. And in 2004, Daryl launched a digital marketing agency that evolved from being a website development company to a complete digital marketing services agency to now a consultancy that helps companies implement strategic growth strategies. And interesting fact, he likes sweet things. He was born and raised in Canada where he developed a love of sweet maple syrup and ultimately met and married a sweet Southern girl from Arkansas where he now lives. Daryl, congratulations on the Revenue Growth Engine and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> Douglas, it's great to be here. So you are the second person I've interviewed who's in the state of Arkansas. I also interviewed uh, Jim Carr, author of The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. And he also had the very poor judgment to interview me on his Manage Your Message podcast. <laughs> Jim is a class act, and I think that his work in in Manage Your Message is purely brilliant um, in, in terms of identifying the core of what we call in Revenue Growth Engine, the focused message around the outcomes clients want. And then he does a great job at at uh, coming up with strategies and helping companies align that message and push it out through sales, marketing, operations, the whole thing. I think Jim Carr is a rock star. So changing the subject, you went to Harding University in um, Searcy, Arkansas. Is that correct? 
I did, yes. So there is a professor of marketing there, John Wood, who is also a Harding graduate, go Bisons. And he graduated <laughs> a little bit before you did, but he studied chemistry, he got a master's in chemistry, he went on to get a law degree, now he's teaching marketing there, and he had me Skype into his class, his marketing class there, a year or two ago, and it was a great experience that the, the students seemed to enjoy it, and, and John didn't get fired for doing that. So just a message to all you uh, academics out there, if you, let's say, if you're already tenured, I'm, I'm happy to come into your class. If you're not tenured yet, I, I'm not sure you want to have me there because you might get fired, but but I love doing that. I'm, I, I do it uh, it's fun. For, for a lot of folks. Yeah, so I'm available because... Daryl, Amy, I believe that children are our future and that we should teach them well and, and let them lead the way. And Yeah. Show them all the marketing beauty they possess inside. Absolutely. Thank you. You see, yes. Daryl, we are uh, brothers from different mothers. Okay. So let's talk about your book, Revenue Growth Engine. And actually, I've got a couple of questions from listeners who knew I was going to be interviewing you because I always post about a, a week in advance about uh, which book I'm going to be interviewing. And sure enough, some folks uh, had some questions for you. But I've just got to say, this book covers my favorite subject <laughs> so much. I've, I, you know, over 300 books on the show. This book is seriously right up my alley. You know, when I see a book about the intersection of sales and marketing, I immediately want to read it and, and interview the author. And when I have a, a book, that has the word revenue, growth, uh, sales and marketing alignment in the title. It's like go to the front of the line. I, I've got to, I've got to interview that author, and I really uh, enjoyed it. And there's a lot of stuff in here that I will be stealing with full attribution. But it, <laughs> and we can talk about this later. But it, it 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 for me as an agency owner, it really helped me feel like I wasn't alone. So the, the healing has begun. It turned into a support group, but you know, for issues that I've had with businesses, which I'm sure a lot of businesses have, but in terms of goals and, and some of the things that work. And also you talk about some of the, the problems of revenue growth and how we've tried to help clients, but maybe it wasn't a holistic enough approach where we, <laughs> in other words, we, maybe we generate all the leads but they're not following a sales process. And that's, as I've mentioned in some other episodes uh, recently, that's where I finally snapped and said, that's it. We're not, <laughs> not going to help you people <laughs> unless we know we're going to be helpful. And you're not going to do that if you don't follow some kind of uh, sales process. But the book is also endorsed by previous marketing book podcast guests like Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter, Mike Weinberg, and of course, um, Jim Carr. And I can also sense from reading the book that you have refined this over the years by with workshops because there are so many practical ideas that's why I saw in here so many things that I can you know I can use uh, or anyone any kind of marketing leader could use yeah it it is definitely come from you you mentioned the my one of my alma maters but I think the the best alma mater in all of this has been the University of Hard Knocks in which I've been a student for the last 27 years and you know it it's been in that world and and it's been an interesting journey because the I started straight out of university into technology sales uh, was involved in sales management got very interested in sales development um, so I started training salespeople 2004, hung out the shingle to uh, start a sales training company, 
And my very first client, Douglas, came to me and he said, hey, everything you taught my sales team was fantastic. However, my website doesn't say anything about it. Do you build websites? And so 17, now 18 years ago, I guess the answer for a first client was, yes, sir, we build websites. And uh, I'd actually built one for a nonprofit and for my church. So I took that marketing degree out of my back pocket. And now I've had uh, the opportunity for the last 17 years, 18 years now to have one foot squarely in sales and sales development, which I'm very passionate about. And the other foot along this whole fun journey of web, search, social, inbound, account-based marketing. And it's put me right in the middle with hands in involved deeply in both sales and marketing. And and it's really been out of that that the revenue growth engine uh, was was born, and that's why the book is right up my alley. Because I, if there's, if I find books that have uh, that are relevant for marketers and salespeople, I know it's gonna it's gonna be a helpful book. And this book, you know, I don't often say this, but every marketer ought to read this. And I think the other folks that should definitely read this would be anyone who's responsible for growing revenue. So that would be the CEO or the head of sales mm-hmm. or whoever or the business owner. If you are a business owner and you want marketing to give you a pretty website and nothing else, this is not your book. <laughs> you can stop listening right now. But if you are, in, f- in fact, focused on growing revenue, which you should be. And, you know, I should also add, sorry to keep talking about myself. Uh, you're the guest here. But I, you know, I give this talk every once in a while where I'm talking about, um, you know, what, what have you learned from you know, 300 books and what are some of the key ideas? And I haven't learned much, but one of the things that I talk about is how marketers need to be talking more about revenue when they're around civilians. Quit talking about retweets yes. and <laughs> activity and all that sort of thing. And that's why this book is is so important. And your stature as a marketer will improve. You'll be invited to the to the decision making table, I would think ultimately you would be you would be greatly separated from a lot of this widespread perception of marketers as being arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department. You, you go in talking about revenue and the things in this book, you're going to do well. Let me read a couple excerpts from it from the uh, preface. Speaking at industry conferences has been a regular part of my career. However, this group was different. It is a mixed group of B2B marketing professionals, sales managers, and business owners, some of whom are former clients of mine. Everyone in the crowd wanted to grow revenue, but they all had a different opinion as to what it would take to build. Marketing managers were frustrated that others in the room did not see how buyers have changed. They wanted more buy-in from both sales and company management. They were hoping that the conference would be the tipping point for the executive team to go all in on inbound marketing. The room also included sales managers, most of whom, if they were honest, did not value marketing. They believed that the leads that came from marketing were soft, not useful to their team. Most of the sales managers felt that they needed more salespeople to prospect. One sales manager, who thankfully was not at the event, was so against marketing that he decided to bully his way to gutting the marketing budget so he could hire more sales reps. The executives and business owners in the room were open-minded but confused as to how they should proceed. They wanted faster revenue growth, but simply plugging in a new marketing program seemed to be incomplete. Most had been down that road before and not seen results, so they were reluctant to dedicate budget. Daryl, Amy, pick up the story from there and tell us what happened. 
Well, so I'm standing in front of this room and it's or just remember the marketing people like we are. We're so excited because there's so many new gadgets and exciting new platforms and strategies. And so they were they were all sitting on the front rows in this conference room. Right behind them, you could tell who the sales leaders were. You know, VPs of sales were sitting there with their arms folded, uh, drinking their cups of coffee, you know, on their iPhones, responding, going, hey, I got really important stuff to do. Why am I in this conference? And you marketing people never send me good leads. And the funny part, or sad, depending on how you want to look at it, were the business owners or a couple of business owners that had come to this conference as well with their teams. And they were all standing at the back, talking to each other and drinking their coffee. And you could see just you, you could see the thought bubbles over their head going why can't why can't these people get along why can't they work <laughs> together and uh and i had you know i was in that room with clients some of which um had been inbound marketing clients and gotten burned out on it um we could talk more about that later on but um you know i, I was like if i go in and i deliver the standard, you know, presentation from challenger customer with my friends, Brent Adamson and Matt Dixon and say buyers are blank percent through the buying process. And this is digital, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to get slaughtered by these people. And the sales managers are at the back, uh, you know, going, where are the good leads? And so that's when, when I had this, you know, you talk about the religious experience, I had this epiphany. And I said, you know what? It's not about sales. As much as I love sales and sales enablement technology and sales strategies, it's not about marketing as much as I love all of the cool things happening in marketing. The real thing that we're driving at here is revenue. And when we get our focus on revenue and what it takes to drive revenue, it does a couple of things. First of all, it gets us to lift our head up out of you know our computer monitor or our iPhone and go, you know what, what we're really aiming at is growing the business. And then it also gives sales and marketing a common language and a common goal to focus on that, as you mentioned earlier, is actually going to be relevant in the executive suite and help get the buy-in that uh, marketers want along the way. So it, the conference, so I walked into that conference, Doug, and, and it, it became Revenue 101. Um, I said, hey, you know what? The, the goal of this is growing revenue. And there's actually only two ways to grow revenue. If you boil it all down, and this is where maple syrup comes in, because maple syrup is the process of boiling down that delicious sap into the world's uh, most tasty substance. But I digress. If you boil everything down in, uh, in, in revenue growth, there's only two ways to grow revenue. We get more new clients or we cross-sell more stuff to our existing client base. And that's, you know, really those are the two big categories of revenue growth. So marketing, sales, here's your questions. How can we drive more net new customers and how can we sell more to our base? And when we look at it from that perspective, now we've got a common goal and two common sub goals, if you will, that are actually going to be uh, the things that deliver results, which is revenue growth. So true. And I think that way too many companies are too obsessed with net new growth rather than selling more to their current customers. That, that's just been my experience. What about you? It, 
it's interesting. I actually have a survey going on LinkedIn right now. I think it expires here in the next day or two. But I ask, you know, are you better? Is is your company uh, better at driving net new or better at cross-selling more to your current customers? And so far, my unstatistically significant survey on LinkedIn is saying what I experience all the time with our clients doing revenue growth workshops is that two to one companies say we're better at driving net new than cross-selling. Yet what I've noticed is, well, it's more than noticed. This is actually just a simple math problem. If you grow, um, if you if you're really good at net new and you grow net new, you're going to have linear growth. You know, whatever your net new number is, say, hey, Daryl, we can do 10% year over year growth in net new. We got it. Uh, great. You know what your growth is going to be. The problem is that growth is going to be linear. It's going to be a straight line. If you can grow net new and cross sell revenue simultaneously all of a sudden your growth just went from linear to exponential. You went from the straight line to the hockey stick. And, you know, it's really, really cool. Actually, uh, Douglas, I borrowed a, um, I borrowed a, a tool from the, the investment industry and, and the investment industry has a thing called the rule of 72. And what the rule of 72 does is it tells you how long it takes to double your investment. Well, the application here is how long does it take you to double your revenue as a, a sales team or a company? Um, you actually take your growth rate and take the number 72 and divide it by your growth rate. Pretty simple math. So if you're growing 10% year over year, you know that it's going to take 72 divided by 10%. Uh, wow, 7.2 years to double revenue. Here's what I found, and this is where I started to get really excited, is if I can grow net new business and we can grow cross-sell revenue at the same time at a modest growth rate of 10, 12% per year in each one of those, the math shows, it, shows us that we can actually double revenue right around 36 months. And uh, that's showing modest, not ridiculous, but modest growth rates in each one of those areas. And I don't know, you know, your list, listeners, you know, if you're listening in and you're a company that has struggled this past year because of the, the challenges of the pandemic and the economy, my guess is you need to accelerate growth. Uh, how can you do that? Get both, both sides of your revenue growth engine, net new and cross-sell growing at the same time. And you can accelerate out of the ditch that we're in. I loved the math you had at the beginning. It got my attention. And I, I just envisioned all those salespeople at that meeting you were discussing <laughs> suddenly not crossing their arms, <laughs> thinking, you look, marketing boy, you know, this is, pre <laughs> this is pretty, but I live in the real world. And uh, by the way, there's no more budget. So I, I'm using it to hire another uh, sales reps. <laughs> Well, let me just mention something that you, you say this again. There's so many sections of your book that just warm the cockles of my heart. One of them was what this book is not. Okay. So all of you B2B lead gen spammers on LinkedIn that are always trying to connect with me and bother me and my clients, <laughs> you know, or, or you, you people that are, you know, anybody that has the word guaranteed in their LinkedIn profile. Yeah. Well, you know what? They're probably not listening to this podcast anyway. But Probably say, not. What this book is not. Growth gurus are a dime a dozen these days. Scroll through your Facebook or LinkedIn feed and you will find sponsored ads for companies promising to grow your revenue. Build a funnel and they will come. 
try my new paid advertising program and you will have so many leads, you won't know what to do. This book is not the business equivalent of a get-rich-quick scheme. I do not offer you a silver bullet. After all, it is these one-off marketing or sales tactics that have left so many businesses disillusioned. Daryl, Amy, if this book is not the business equivalent of a get-rich-quick scheme, you realize you're not going to sell many books, right? <laughs> well, hey, you know what? I'd, I'll take being honest over over uh, you know promising things. Here's the deal. You know, all of these different tactics, funnels, you know, marketing platforms, sales enablement, all of these things are good, but they need to exist inside a bigger plan and strategy. Um, it's kind of like uh, if we were to use the engine analogy, you know, you, if if you if you have a carburetor for example, you know, and, and you just have a carburetor and you go, this is the best carburetor on the marketplace. It is an incredible carburetor. It will, you know, do what carburetors do better than any other carburetor. You can tell I'm not a mechanic. But, and, well, but and also, just, whoever's hearing this, they may not realize that they have a fuel-injected car. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's get a carburetor. That Maybe that'll work. <laughs> Fair enough. But, you know, the, the reality is all of these, these tools, they need to live inside a strategy. And that yes. strategy needs to aim at the end result, which is driving revenue growth by growing net new and growing cross-sell simultaneously. So don't talk to me about the carburetor as the end-all, be-all, you know, thing. Talk to me or, you know, whatever marketing tactic um, or whatever sales strategy or sales model, don't talk to me about that being the end-all until you take that and you plug it in to an overall strategy. And, you know, this is where uh, I think a lot of people get, and we're guilty of this in the marketing world. I mean, we love shiny objects. I'm oh, a, yeah. I love, I love, I'm a nerd. I mean, I just got my new iPhone delivered on Friday because I'm, I want the latest, greatest. I just do. I love gadgets. I love technology. I love new platforms. But with all of that, you know, there are times where I've just got to put that on the shelf and go, okay. What's the plan? <laughs> you know, what's the plan, and and what's the bigger picture here, and and how does this fit? And um, you know, how can we build a process around it? Otherwise, it's just going to become another flavor of the month. And you know, we all know how burned out and uh, disillusioned uh, we are with you know we are at least the people around us are with the flavor of the month and and so it's it's got to be part of a bigger strategy and that's what we were aiming at in the revenue growth engine model yes and not many authors make a guarantee but listener daryl amy does he writes if you do all of the things i recommend in this book and you do not grow hunt me down online and i will send you back the money you spent on this book along with enough money to buy your lunch for your trouble. That's right. However, I think we both know that when you take affirmative action and focus on growth, you will be rewarded. So there's really no downside to buying this book and reading it. Daryl, let's go to one of the questions from a listener. Hello, this is Jim Carr calling from Little Rock, Arkansas. I love the Marketing Book Podcast and was really excited that Daryl Amy was going to be your guest I was wondering if you could ask Daryl when he's ever going to return my toolbox and my weed whacker, and maybe if he'll take me to lunch sometime to pay me back. Thanks. So that's uh, 
Jim Carr, actually. We've been talking about him. What, uh, what, what do you say, Daryl Amy? I say, Jim, uh, you know, now that the uh, lawn mowing season is over, I suppose it is time to return your, your weed whacker. Uh, you know, I, it's great. And, and now, that, uh, now that things are starting to open up, maybe we can, we can move this from the digital cup of coffee to the actual literal face-to-face cup, to co- cup of coffee. Jim is, Jim, as we said at the beginning, Jim, you're, you're a class act and you're hilarious. That's great. You still need to take him to lunch, though. Let's pretend for a moment that you're about to launch a campaign. It tested well. Your entire team is happy. Everything is going according to plan, except for that one thought in the back of your head. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? The answer is LinkedIn. Because when you market on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to do business. And that means your advertising campaign will work as hard as it can as soon as you launch it. Over 62 million decision makers are on LinkedIn. And that's just one of the many reasons why more than 78% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as the most effective social media platform at helping their organization achieve specific objectives. LinkedIn has tools for branding and lead generation. Not only can you target and reach a professional audience down to their job title, company name, and location, but you can engage people you already know based on who's visited your site or who you've contacted in the past. And to make this ridiculously easy to try, LinkedIn is giving marketing book podcast listeners a $100 advertising credit toward their first LinkedIn campaign. Visit linkedin.com slash marketing book, linkedin.com slash marketing book. Terms and conditions apply. Let's go back to the book. You, so you had an, an, an epiphany, a couple of epiphanies in that um, you know, there are only two ways to grow revenue. You, okay, listen closely. One, get more clients. Two, Sell more to your current clients. We've talked about that. Now you have another. You had another epiphany. Speaking of uh, religious experiences, and that is that ideal clients accelerate growth. Ideal clients accelerate growth. Explain what you're talking about. Yeah this this one um, is born out of workshops, and uh, you mentioned earlier workshops. So ideal clients are the clients that are the best fit clients for your organization. And and when I say best fit, I mean that from two different angles. From a very practical angle, they're able to buy everything that you sell. Um, When I was my very first sales job, it was in a highly competitive dog-eat-dog technology sales business in a local territory. I worked for a company that that had multiple products. They had some hardware products. They also had some software products. And what they said, they drilled this into us. They said, we want all of our clients to be 100% sold. And so what I took away, I've carried that terminology, 100% sold with me throughout my entire career. And, And what they meant was, we want our clients to buy everything they can from us, as Jay Abraham would say, to get the best and highest value from our company. Well, an ideal client is the type of company that has the ability or the need to buy everything that you sell versus what I would call an average client that just, you know, might be a 
have a need for one product category um, or a smaller a smaller product category as opposed to the whole meal deal. The other great thing about ideal clients is they're a good fit for your business uh, psychographically, if you will. Like they align with your values. They appreciate what you do. They value your advice. And so what I discovered, we go in uh, to do revenue growth workshops. One of the very first things I'll ask the team that's sitting there is I'll say, hey, tell me about your favorite clients. We'll even go around the room. Everyone pick a favorite client. And what they'll tell me is obviously the characteristics we just talked about. They love us. They trust us. They respect us. They pay their bills on time. And then I will say, okay, well, these ideal clients, if they bought everything they could buy from you over the next 10 years, what would that client be worth? And we start doing the math. Little time out here. I know in the marketing world, we like to talk about lifetime value of a client. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've discovered is that becomes really kind of, uh, it's hard. People really struggle with that because- And you put it, it you lifetime. say, put it in 10 years, right? 10 years, right? Yeah. So 10 years is long enough. And by the way, these ideal clients are the kind of clients that are going to be around for 10 years because they- appreciate you. They're not like the average client that ends up price shopping every time there's contract renewal. So I'll say, what what is it worth? So um, over 10 I, years. And the reason I, let me just years. interject. The reason I like that is because I, I have talked to CFOs or anybody and I say, how long do you keep your customers? Well, see how that, see how that throws them off a little bit. Instead, again, this is like one of many parts I'm, I'm stealing. Let's just talk 10 years. Okay. Yes. It, it, it removes some of the friction from that conversation. And I think it's really helpful for uh, marketers because also I've had this conversation. This is like a support group, Daryl. And, and, uh, <laughs> but they'll say, Oh, Hi, we keep my them name forever. Is Douglas. Yeah. Thank you. I, and, but they, they'll, they'll start, they won't be honest about how long they go. Well, some stay for a year and some stay for 30 years. It's like, all right, let's just go with 10 years. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, you really reduce the speed bump with, with just that one little thing. You do. And so, and it's also easy math because what I really want to get at is what's the annual, uh, what's that client worth on an annual basis? So I was doing this exercise recently with a great growing technology company in the Northeast and we added it up. They had a core hardware product line. They also had some professional services that were a new growing area of their business, some software. So we added it all up and the number was 880,000 was the value of an ideal client for them over the next 10 years. Well, you move the decimal one place and you figure out that the average annual value of an ideal client is $88,000. So then what we did is we said, hey, by the way, what about what about your average client? You know, those up and down the street, bread and butter clients that you just can't bear to part with. Um, the ones that price shop you every time there's a renewal that um, complain because, and they're not really a good fit for your business, but just can't let go of them. <laughs> when, when I look at, at those clients, we added it up. So remember, 10-year value of an ideal client, 880000 10-year value of an average client, 34000 mm. So you look at that and go, okay, if I want to, and I'm I'm not saying fire all of your average clients. I'm not saying don't take orders from them. But I am saying if you want to strategically grow your business faster, if you need to accelerate growth, especially as we you know, think about uh, the recovery and, and what's going to be next, if you need to accelerate growth, the best way to do it is with ideal clients because we call those 
uh, usually 20x or 30x clients. I've done this across multiple industries, different size companies, different areas of the country. And I've found this over and over again, that the average value of an ideal client is usually somewhere between 20 and 30 times your average client. And the takeaway on that is if you want to grow, find these ideal clients. And by the way, we're not also not talking about necessarily going after, you know, Fortune 500 companies. It, that ideal client for most organizations is usually just one notch above the average client. Uh, and and they're, they're defined, they appreciate what you do, and they've got tremendous potential to drive exponential growth in your organization. Yeah, an interesting question I've sometimes asked in you know, stumbling through this approach is, do you have any clients you'd like to fire? That also gets people going pretty quickly, like, oh, <laughs> we can't stand them. Because you ask, like, what, what, uh, what do they, uh, what, what are their uh, ideal uh, customers like? So you write that some businesses thrive bringing in revenue growth year after year, while others fall flat because of the quality of the revenue growth engine that drives their business. So, Daryl, Amy, how does a revenue growth engine work? Well, it is an engine. So if you think about every company has a revenue growth engine of some kind, otherwise you wouldn't be in business. But I had this epiphany um, right after I stopped using uh, Jim Carr's Weed Whacker. I got onto my riding lawnmower and uh, I was actually driving my riding lawnmower and I saw that in, you know, I don't know how fast a riding lawnmower goes, probably what, two miles an hour. You know, you're kind of puttering along. And by the way, I listen to great podcasts like the Marketing Book Podcast while I'm mowing the lawn. So we multitask. But I'm driving this, uh, I'm riding on my lawnmower. Which I was wondering has who that engine. listener in the Little Rock area was. So <laughs> there you go. Now you know. Now I have two, uh, yes. It's either me and or Jim. So um, I was I was riding down the driveway, just puttering along. And at the end of the driveway, I could see my car. I like to drive fast. I like to accelerate. Um, and I've got a, a car that accelerates quite nicely, especially compared to my lawnmower. And I had this realization um, you know, every business has a, an, a a growth engine. The problem is some businesses have two cylinders in their growth engine. Other businesses have 12. And they're both businesses. They both have a growth engine. The real question is how many cylinders does your revenue growth engine have? And when I'm talking about cylinders in the revenue growth engine model, I'm talking about marketing and sales processes that are aimed at either driving net new or driving cross-sell revenue. The more cylinders you have, the faster you're going to go, the faster you're going to be able to accelerate. You write that most companies focus on only one of the two growth drivers, which we've talked about. They either focus on driving new customers or they work hard on cross-selling through existing clients. Very rarely do both drivers function well at the same time. And then... As I got to page 33 in the book, I thought you were writing about experiences I've had. You wrote, there was one company we worked with that focused on growing that new business. They wanted some leads, so they hired us to get them on Google. We told them that they needed to consider what happened once someone found their website. <laughs> how would they convert those visitors to leads? Daryl, I've had this conversation. Then how would those leads get qualified and handed off to sales? It was like they wanted to invest in improving one cylinder, 
but ignored the other two cylinders related to it. After a month of working with us, this company ended up being frustrated with the results of the sales team (laughs) and angry with the marketing team. They were only running two of the six cylinders for net new business growth. So I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've been there. You, you had me at that part and that's why I, you know, of course this is the more background of the, uh, frustration that I mentioned earlier, and I, I realize this is turning into a, a therapy session for me. So thank you, Daryl. Uh, please send me your please send me your bill. So the different components of a revenue growth engine. Can you take us a little further into what you mean by the the sales and the marketing? Yeah. So when you get a copy of the Revenue Growth Engine book, and by the way, if you want to see the whole model, uh, just text the word revenue to 21,000 and you can find that in our toolkit. But you'll see in the model, really, if you think about the two ways to grow revenue, net new and cross sell, both sales and marketing have a role to play in each one of those. So with net new business, um, the marketing role is what I call outbound marketing. And the sales role is what I call outbound selling. And so inside each one of those, there's several cylinders running in in those areas um, we can unpack. Cross-sell, same thing. And by the way, cross-sell for most companies equals low-hanging fruit. Faster revenue too, right? It does. Oh, my goodness. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But on the cross-sell side of the revenue growth engine, the sales responsibility is client management. And the marketing uh, areas is our client communication areas. But the idea is that we want marketing and sales with uh, you know the, the right cylinders, the right processes put in place in each one of these four quadrants so that we've got an engine working that's going to drive net new and cross-sell. So it's all in there. And probably the most controversial thing that I, I took away from the book was on page 40, where you write that. Okay, is everybody ready? Traditional marketing focus is on class, anyone, getting leads. <laughs> now, you argue that you do not need leads if you already know who your ideal prospects are. Daryl, Amy, what in the world are you talking about? So let's go back to this marketing conference, right? The thought bubble with all this sale. This has been the 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 uh, battle of sales and marketing, right? Sales goes, give us more leads. Marketing goes, here's your leads, and sales goes, these leads are garbage. You know, so we go back and forth, back and forth. This is, you know, since the dawn of sales and marketing, this is what it's been like. And to that, I say, stop it, just stop. Here's the deal. If you're in the B2B space and if you know who your ideal clients are, you should then be able to know who your ideal prospects are. So once you have that ideal client profile, you translate that to the market in general and you know who your ideal prospects are. At that point, you don't need leads. You already know who your leads are. They're your ideal prospects. What you need instead is you need intelligence and engagement with those ideal prospects, but we don't need leads. And look, I I understand we have a lot of different people listening to the podcast, and I specialize primarily in the B2B space where you have sales teams calling on businesses and you have uh, marketing teams focused on business. And in the B2B space, we, we can know who our ideal clients are. We can get the data. Look, if you run a um, roofing company in uh, you know, a large metropolitan area and there are 
people out there actively searching for, um, you know, someone to repair their roof, like I am right now personally, um, then yes, an inbound marketing strategy where I, you know, put that out there, I look for people searching online. Great. But here's the challenge in the B2B space. And this is, uh, this is something that, you know, is really driving right now the shift in B2B from inbound marketing to outbound marketing or account-based marketing is this. If I've got a thousand ideal prospects and I need to grow my business, I can't wait for one of those thousand companies to hopefully swim by my website and nibble on um, you know, a downloadable report or comment on a social post. I can't wait for that to happen. And so the salesperson inside me says, ideal clients, let's make sure we're engaging with those. And so proactively, proactively. And so what I, what I, the data that the, the metric around that, the scorecard metric around that is what I call 100% coverage. In other words, we know who our ideal prospects are. We are going to do everything in sales to make sure that our rule around here is you can call on whomever you want, but these ideal prospects absolutely 100% will hear from you on this pre-agreed upon cadence. Um, and the decision makers and influencers will be inside our target account program and you will work those accounts you know, with this, with this plan. And by the way, if I'm a sales manager and my sales rep says, well, I don't want to do that. So you don't have to. We'll give the target, target accounts to somebody else. But <laughs> as a company, we will 100%. We know these thousand uh, prospects are the future of our company. We will cover them. Same thing on marketing. And this is a pretty big shift in marketing mindset where we like to throw things out to the masses and hope you know, that you know, a certain percent comes back. With marketing, the challenge is very similar as well to say, okay, what can we do to get 100% engagement uh, from a marketing standpoint? What can we do to get the message through to them? So, you know, for example, we may run an email campaign out to these thousand clients, but we all know that not all the emails get through, not all of them get opened. So what else are we going to do? <laughs> what, what else are we going to do? And the goal should be 100% coverage from a marketing standpoint as well to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to put our minds onto this so we can get on a quarterly basis as close to 100% engagement through whatever channel or tactic it takes so we ensure that our company is getting in front of these people. Here's the deal. And I got this from um, Keith Eads. Keith wrote a book probably 20 years ago um, called The New Solution Selling. And um, Keith is a tech sales guy. He's also Canadian. So I know he's really smart. And, um, and likes maple syrup. And likes maple syrup. So we're, we're, completely, uh, we're completely aligned. But I remember just when I read this 20 years ago, the lights came on. He said, there's two types of need, felt need and latent need. So felt need is the some, someone that right now is on Google searching for the answer to their question. Yes, of course, you need your company to be found by those people. However, the latent need for every is that company that has a business problem that you can solve. 
um, a business problem that's important that needs to be solved. It just may be right below the surface. It's a latent need. Well, guess what our job is in the B2B marketing and sales space? It's to create demand by converting latent needs to felt needs. And so there's a proactiveness to this that I think we've kind of lost, especially on the marketing side with the, you know, with the incredible, um, incredible movement of inbound marketing, we've kind of lost that, that uh, drive to say, hey, we know who these people are, let's go get them and let's convert felt uh, latent needs to felt needs. And that's where you see right now, and I'm really excited about right now, the way that account-based marketing, which has been used by the Fortune 500, especially in the tech space for a while now, is starting to work its way down in both tools and philosophy to the mid-market, to where companies are saying, hey, we know who the accounts are. Let's go get them. Yes. And the term that came to mind for me when you described this is that of a swarming offense. Uh, that's probably a good football term down there in Arkansas. But Love some good football. Swarming offense, where, in other words, no, you, you have to do 10 things, okay? <laughs> You're right. not going to get there. But I, I love that about the uh, latent needs and the felt needs. And, of course, I think I used up two markers throughout this book. I, I underlined it. was on page 163, chapter 9, the first line of that chapter. The job of salespeople is to bring latent needs to the surface to create felt needs. Oh, and you said that's where I think most sales reps have it backwards. I mean, there's, and there are also so many things in your book that entire books have been written about. And just that one right there about bringing latent needs to the surface to create felt needs, it reminded me of Anthony Annarino's book, Eat Their Lunch, all about competitive displacement and how you don't come in as a product vendor. You come in with insights. Talk a bit about what you mean by by bringing insights and also how can uh, marketers help with arming their sales team with insights that will be more effective? Yeah, this this goes all the way back to uh, probably my favorite marketing book is uh, it's an old classic called Marketing Myopia uh, with Ted Levitt, Theodore mm. Levitt, the father of modern marketing, used to walk into his Harvard Business School class holding a drill bit, which is beautiful to me, by the way, because when I'm not helping companies grow, I'm usually in my shop building something. So, but you're using you're using Jim Carr's tools, though, right? Well, hey, why does Jim have to keep coming into this? Jim, I'll bring your tools back. We'll grab lunch. It's all going to be fine. So I'm holding, he walks into into the class holding Jim Carr's drill bit in his hand. (laughs) And he says, nobody, and this is great, Harvard Business School class, you know, they're all sitting there, notepads out, ready to go. And he walks into the class on day one. He says, nobody in the history of Home Depot Lowe's insert hardware store here has ever gone to buy a drill bit. What they went to buy was the hole. And, uh, and, and this was the moment that I realized that buyers do not buy the products you sell. They actually buy the outcomes. And by the yes. way, Seth Godin in uh, This Is Marketing, which uh, is one of my other all-time favorite marketing books, says, look, they didn't go to buy the, the, 
the hole, they actually bought the ability to hang the plaque on the wall so they'd look good to their friends. And then Donald Miller would take it a step further and he'd say, well, actually, we're all afraid of dying. If we don't have friends, we're going to be alone like the cavemen and get eaten by a lion. So they brought the drill bit to avoid dying. Here's the deal. <laughs> they, they didn't buy a drill bit. They either bought a hole or the ability to hang something on the wall or the, uh, you know, something to avoid dying or a combination of all three. And the reality of all of this is buyers don't buy the products and services we sell. They buy the outcomes. Therefore, if you're going to craft a message, sales message, marketing message, email, website, Twitter, doesn't matter what message you're crafting, it should always lead with the outcome that your clients want, which an outcome is a goal realized or a problem solved. And, and this is a fundamental mindset that I think that in just the rush of everyday life, and just the coolness of some of the new products or services you might be rolling out that we just forget and need to be reminded of over and over again. Buyers don't buy products, they buy outcomes. I actually have a drill bit that sits on my desk. And you know, after I return it to Jim Carr, I'll go buy my own. But I, I, I have it there to remind myself that I don't need to talk about the product. I need to talk about the outcome because ultimately... That's all that matters. Yes. And talking about your product or services is not only ineffective, it seems like it's almost damaging if you can't start with a discussion of the outcomes. In other words, the outcomes maybe trigger our caveman brains and the product, yeah, later, uh, the logical part will, will want to justify that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, one of the realizations I came to as I was writing this book is what we actually need, every, every company has a product inventory or every sales rep has a price book. I guess I'm marketing people, we have our product catalog. But uh, what we really need is we need an outcomes inventory. We need a list, a book, a playbook, an inventory of every outcome we can deliver to our prospects. And you might even categorize it by the decision makers and influencers that you go after. What, what are the outcomes that they want? Get that down to the persona level. But the reality is, you know, so much of marketing and sales is misaligned with the buyer because we communicate in our language about our products when what they're looking for is someone that understands them and will communi communicate about the outcomes that they want for themselves personally and their business. And that's why chapter five, build an outcomes inventory, was yet another thing that I could just tell you field tested with years of workshops, <laughs> because you, rather than saying what are the outcomes, you go through an exercise saying, well, let's let's talk about what the outcomes are. It's just, it's, it's really very helpful. And I think it helps with the, um, the messaging. So let's take a quick break and answer another listener question from Irina Jordan. She is, uh, she lives in San Diego. She's actually asked another question a while back and she lives in San Diego. She's originally from uh, mother Russia, as you'll hear on her accent, her beautiful accent. And like Jim Carr and Daryl Amy, uh, you know, she, you can tell she's a listener to the marketing group podcast because she's a very attractive person. So let's, uh, I have the best looking audience in all of podcast landia, just in case you weren't aware of that, Daryl. Okay. Let me play her 
Question. How do you measure revenue growth driven by marketing for existing customers, especially whales and high-growth accounts? For example, when upsells happen thanks to them staying engaged through value-driven content delivered to them on social media channels and via email campaigns. What do you think? Fantastic question, by the way. I want to answer it from two different angles. One of the key metrics that I think companies need to adopt is what I call the 100% sold metric. It would really be what I'm talking about here is account penetration. So um, for every product or services category that you have, what percentage of your client base is using that product or service? So you may have a core product, maybe your company was founded around that you can say, yeah, you know what? 100% of our clients use this product or service. But then you may have added another product that only 20% use. You may have a new professional services offering that 30% use. That's the data that needs to be on the wall. <laughs> that needs to be on the wall of the sales team, of the marketing team. It's the, it's the chart because the, ultimately where we're aiming at, we're aiming for 100% sold. So sales and marketing working together need to be looking at that. And this is, you know, this is where uh, the scorecard needs to be is, okay, what's, what's our, you know, account penetration in this product category, in this services category, and we're all aiming towards 100% sold. That gets the marketing mind thinking about what can we do to drive, uh, you know, more sales in this specific area to our client base. It gets salespeople thinking about, oh, maybe I should pick up the phone and call a current client and talk to him, uh, which is a whole other rant that we'll we'll talk about later. But I, uh, you know, I think that that scorecard of 100% sold and do it by product category works uh, for that. And by the way, if you're in sales or you're a sales leader, now you also want to look at your ideal clients and do that same scorecard for your clients on a client by client basis. So you're looking at that account and going, okay, we're 100% in this category, we're zero over here, what do we need to do strategically to, uh, to, to, to get that business? The other, the other part of that question was also about attribution, right? And mm -hmm. I think it goes back to, you know, as marketers with my marketing hat on, and I've, you know, I've, I've been in this seat where, um, you know, marketing, we, we, we ask for budget um, and we want to be able to justify the ROI and the budget. So we're always looking for ways to, you know, attribute our efforts to, to sales. Part of that tells me that we need to get in the same room and work together because there is no sale that happens without some type of online or marketing interaction. There just isn't. Can you boil it all the way back down to the first engagement? I don't know. That's not always possible. Um, I think, you know, I think as companies, we have to, to just wake up to the reality that they're measuring marketing attribution in terms of is marketing responsible for this lead. It's almost uh, it's it's almost like saying uh, for that football game, was the offense responsible for winning the game or the defense responsible for winning the game? And as I know, since I'm a Cowboys fan, when you don't have an offense or a defense, <laughs> you don't win any games. So, um, you know, I I I uh, I think when you get from that move from the 
give us more leads, the leads are garbage back and forth thing between sales and marketing to saying, these are our ideal clients and these are our ideal prospects. Let's focus on 100% engagement from both sales and marketing with these prospects and clients. Then that conversation changes and maybe the attribution thing isn't um, as big of a deal as it was before. Mm. So Daryl, you write that you believe the number one role of marketing should be to interview current clients and write success stories. <laughs> now, why do you why do you say that? Why do you pick that out? Well, that's a that's good. I'm I'm just chuckling because I can think of um, in my role with with an agency and and I've been involved in web development and then all of the iterations of of online and inbound marketing uh, over the last eighteen years. A lot of times companies will come to us and Douglas, I think you can, uh, you can appreciate this. They'll say, um, you know, we want a marketing strategy. So you'll, you'll come back to them and say, here are all the things, you know, that you should do. You should do this. You should do this. You should do this. And you should do, you know, case studies and success stories of your current clients. And inevitably, uh, my experience has been, yep, Daryl, we want to do this. We want to do this. We want to do this. And I go, what about the case studies? Oh, we'll get around to that. <laughs> right? And, um, you know, because they're a hassle. They're work. Well, uh, usually they, I hear the expression, that won't be a problem. Our customers yeah, no, no, love just, it. Just build a website. We'll do case <laughs> studies later. And just, just, just do this campaign or just create this special report. We'll do case studies later. Here's, here's why um, I am adamant now about case studies, success stories, client interviews, whatever you want to call them. Here's why they need to come first. Because buyers don't buy products, they buy outcomes. When you write those case studies and we interview those clients, they will tell you what the outcomes they value are. And so you, you get real world, real time market research from your clients. They will tell you For free. what you need to put for free on your website, in your marketing materials, in your sales prospecting cadences, in all of this stuff. They will tell you, they'll tell you tip of the hat to Jeb. They'll tell you the because statements. And it's even better. They will tell you in their own words. And this is so valuable because especially in the corporate B2B space, you know, we're just addicted to these, you know, ridiculous buzzwords, right? And they're they're like static noise. We're going to help you enhance productivity, streamline efficiency, and drive security inside your, you know, it's like, it's just noise. The, the clients will actually tell you in their words what to say. And this is why I think, you know, from a, a marketing standpoint, whoever is responsible for creating the message and the message is the fuel for your revenue growth engine. If you're responsible for the message for your company, go talk to your best clients, write case studies, do interviews, shoot videos, you know, get testimonials, whatever it is, because they will tell you, you know, in that outcomes inventory, there may be 20, 50 different outcomes you can deliver. Well, guess what? There's a couple of them that are really valuable to your prospects. So focus on those. And you don't know what they are until you talk to them. And, and my, my experience, so let me tell you about case studies. So um, this was so fun. I used to, when, with the agency, I used to write a lot of the case studies because for me, 
it was total real world market research. It allowed me to keep my finger on the pulse of what was going on. So when I was writing the case study, I would say, hey, um, let me let me interview the salesperson first. And then when I interview the client, I'll know what's going on and I'll be able to be very efficient with their time. So I talked to the sales rep and they'd tell me the backstory and I'd say, well, why did they buy? And most salespeople would say, well, the reason they bought was that we saved them money, right? We, we were, uh, okay, fair enough. We, and why else did they buy? Uh, mainly because we saved them money. Okay. Then I'd interview the client and I'd say, hey, you know, what benefits are you getting from this? How has this transformed your business? Why did you buy? And they'd start rattling off all these different things. <laughs> and usually almost every one of these case studies, I'd have to say discreetly or politely, I'd say, hey, by the way, I'm curious, how are you tracking the ROI on this investment? <laughs> like the money question, right? And the clients would go, ah, we're not really doing that, but we like this, 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 and this. <laughs> and I go back to the salesperson and go, hey, would you like to know why your clients are really buying from you and why they might have even paid a little bit more than what they were previously spending, yet you felt like you had to save them money? And and it was just, I mean, it was, I laughed. I, I, I was, you know, I'd have to hit the mute button during some of these client interviews. So I'm laughing based on hearing what the sales rep said and what the client told me was the real reason that they bought. And that tells me that there is a lot of misalignment there. And one of the best ways you can fix it, go out and talk with your ideal clients and they'll give you the keys to the kingdom in terms of how to bring more of them on board. So true. And it's almost like you could say to your marketing people or, or whatever, I want one case study a month. Just go do it. And this works well on it's like, again, you're, you're like, uh, I love how you are able to, you said you're a Cowboys fan, how you're able to kind of, uh, <laughs> corral <laughs> these uh, clients viewers into the right direction. So one thing that happens there is the marketing, per- let's say it's the marketing person who's going off and doing these because the salespeople, they're busy and they got other things they need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the marketing person then is pretty quickly going to turn into the customer expert. In other words, getting the deep insights that um, you just described. So by forcing them to do that, uh, and also uh, that's good. And then also, you know, as I often say, the, cus- the, the companies with the deepest insights into their customers always win. That, yes. that becomes the biggest differentiator. And I, can, I got a stack of books I can throw at you, <laughs> listener, to, to prove it. Uh, but you understand the friction in their life and the frustrations and what makes them angry and what makes them happy. And it's usually different from lowest price. And a lot yeah. of salespeople say, oh, no, we just got to lower our price to get it. But it's going to improve the uh, the messaging as well. And another thing that I was going to mention is that when we've gone off and done customer interviews, just like you were describing, we do, we follow, uh, in fact, we do what's outlined in Adele Ravella's book, uh, Buyer Personas, where there's really just you know, different interviews for different types of things, but that's one where you get these these five insights, which really give you an unfair advantage in uh, mm-hmm. understanding your customers. And we've come back to clients and they'll say things like, wow, you really understand our clients. And it's almost, you know, we say, well, we were just following this. They don't want to hear it. It's like, wow, you really got into their heads. And I'm thinking, it was a 20-minute interview. That, right. that was it. And it's then, not that complicated, right? Yeah. yeah. And then... The other thing that they'll sometimes say is, wow, I forgot how much goes on in the customer's world before they come to us. Mm. 
So by by doing the case study, let's say every month, I'm giving you all that homework. There are so many benefits uh, that will that will come your way. Can I add one more? Please. The 2000, I think it was 2018, the word of the year was post-trust. And we're working right now in a post-trust economy. Right yes, now, explain trust, what that is. That's so well, important. Well, it's just, I mean, look, buyers never trusted sellers. <laughs> I mean, but it's like, an, it's at, you know, all-time high level, the Edelman Trust Index, all that stuff. I mean, you look it up and you realize the number one obstacle that we have when it comes to um, getting new business is nobody believes anybody about anything anymore. Um, it just is the world we live in, the world of fake news, the world of unfulfilled promises from companies. You know, and don't take it personally. You may be great at fulfilling your promises. The reality, though, is your prospects have been burned over and over again um, by false you know, unfulfilled promises from companies. So everybody's in this world of low trust. Well, how do you earn trust? Well, I think there's an, a number of ways. We've talked about, you know, just getting through their filter by talking about an outcome that they want. But I think we start to build trust more quickly when we have current clients that are telling our prospects what what we want to tell them. It's it's like the old thing, like you can't say that you're an expert. If you, if you have, you know, on your marketing, on your website, and there's a headline that says, we are experts, you can't say that. <laughs> you just can't. The only person that can say you're an expert is your clients. Um, so let them say it. And that's why go interview them, talk to them, put case studies out there. Because in the post-trust economy, we need the validation. We need somebody to tell us that, you know what, these guys at this company might actually, they might actually be telling the truth, right? We need, we need some signals. We need that they might actually follow through. So everything that you can do, and, and we know this because anytime we do buy anything or need any problem solved, we look at online reviews, right? There's no question about that, but we've got to also realize that once we get in the sales cycle, you know, there is there is mistrust everywhere. And what we've got to do is we've got to continually work to overcome that buyer resistance, as uh, Tom Hopkins says in one of my favorite books by him called Sell It Today, Sell It Now. There's buyer resistance. We've got to overcome it. And one of the best ways to do it, testimonials, case studies, success stories, get your current clients, especially the ideal clients, on video, on record, saying, you know, things that are going to help put your prospects at ease. Yes, don't take our word for it. And there was another book, and now I can't remember, so apologies to the author, but 300 books, you know, several cases of scotch, it all starts to blend together. But uh, they talked about how there was this one company at trade shows, and their entire booth was staffed only with customers. There were absolutely no employees allowed at what that a mean trade. thing to do to your current customers to make them stand in well, a trade show booth. But I like, get it. That's really funny. That's well, they awesome. like you. I mean, they. they but <laughs> they and, and, really and they would like make you. a big deal of it, saying there are yeah. no employees in this trade show, but these are only customers. That is so cool. And so cool. So that's just an extension of of uh, of what you're talking about there. So you talk quite a bit in the book about content. And content's kind of important. <laughs> so 
Daryl, you write that content is the heart of your website. And I can, I can just imagine a lot of those guys in the back of the room with their arms crossed saying, we don't need any stinking content, you know, marketing boy. And that if you look at most websites, you'll find the content written for the owner of the company, <laughs> not the prospective client. So talk about website content, particularly the concept that you uh, introduce of uh, internal content and what the problems are with weak uh, internal content. Yeah, uh, this is oh, so many different ways to go with this, but the the reality is this interview is just one trigger after another, setting you I know, off, setting me off. So fun. So yeah, I mean, when, here's here's what I noticed when we build a website, that all the focus goes into the homepage, the graphic design, the message on the homepage, and, and all of that. Which is good. I mean, you, you need a great first impression, but the problem is these days the first impression of your website is not always, and maybe even not usually, the homepage. People go to the great answer machine um, with a question and they search for answers to the question. Tip of the hat to our friend Marcus Sheridan, right? They've got questions yeah. or they've they're trying to figure out how to solve a problem. So um, let me just you, interject 90% of the traffic on our agency website is mm -hmm. the blog. Bingo. Now we've written a lot of articles, but th those blog posts are not about us. <laughs> They're about how to solve a problem or answer a question. That's right. And so, you know, here's here's the deal and this is where I think we we go wrong is we spend all this time looking at the um the the homepage of the site, but we don't spend enough time really considering the content on the blog. Is it helpful? Is it relevant? Does it offer um, insights that are valuable to clients, which is, by the way, what they want, right? Challenger sale. We, they want insight um, from the companies they work with. Um, and so we end up writing, you know, we got a, a, a we, we have this tendency as marketers to just kind of crank out blog articles, um, because we've got a goal to get a certain number out there. And, you know, I think for the last decade or so, I love the content marketing revolution, but at the same time, I think, you know, we've got to steer back towards quality from just pure quantity. Mm -hmm. And the quality, once again, every, every blog article on your website, the exercise is simple. Does it lead with an outcome that a buyer wants? And, you know, even if you're answering a question, are you answering the question from the perspective of the problem the client's trying to solve or the, the goal they're trying to hit? And so it's really, really critical that when we look at our website, does it need to look professional? Yes. I mean, it's got, you know, if, if, if you had your website designed in Microsoft front page in the mid 90s, you need to fix that. However, we get so obsessed with, you know, the, the look and feel in building and maintaining our sites that we forget the meat of the whole thing is the, is the content. And that, that content's got to be focused and meaningful. Otherwise, it just ends up being noise. And, you know, you know there's noise when you look at your, your bounce rate, right? How many people click the back button or just leave? And, um, you know, going through and looking at all of the content on your website and uh, your brochures and your downloads, and your special reports and your sales collateral and go, does it lead with an outcome? And if not, 
change it. Yes. And so they see maybe the homepage and that's good. And then they want to go, you know, let's be honest, they probably don't trust what's on the homepage anyway. <laughs> but then they go in, they want to get more specifics. And there's like, well, is this, is this it? Or as they say in your neighboring state of Texas, they're all hat, no cattle. Right. So let's move on though. Uh, there's one other uh, area that is a big part of your book that we haven't talked much about and it's customer experience. This is a big, big, important part of mm -hmm. the revenue growth engine. And yes. again, you know, what, like, as I mentioned earlier, and they give this talk every time I pass a, a milestone, like 250 books or 300 episodes, they'll say, you know, what are the big things? This is where your book ties together so many of the most important things. And you write that, and I'm talking about specifically here, the customer experience, you write that most companies spend considerable time or some time <laughs> thinking about the pre-sales experience. So maybe they've, and that's not a bad thing. Maybe they're following a sales process, but what are companies missing maybe by only focusing on the pre-sales experience and, and what are the, the really fast ones doing? Yeah. Well, you, obviously if you don't have a good pre-sales experience, you're not going to close any deals. And, and even if you do have one, you can optimize it and improve your close rate. And I, by the way, this all, this customer experience thing I've been watching for, for several years. I mean, it is a huge conversation in the operations side of businesses in, um, in the um, hospitality world. Hortz-Schultz's Excellence Wins, amazing book, by the way. He was the CEO of Ritz-Carlton. He talked about client experience. Right before the pandemic, I was uh, and everything shut down. I was at Sales 3.0. And um, while I was in Orlando, I, I had dinner with, with some friends. And the guy across the table from me, um, I said, what do you do? And he goes, I um, just met this guy. What do you do? He said, I work at the Disney Institute. Like, oh, you got my attention now. This so tell me, what are you reading? And um, you know, he he pointed me to a book that is really uh it's it's my favorite book of this past year that I've read called The Experience Economy by Joseph Pine and James Gilmore. And in this book, which originally was written in 1997, it just got re-released, they said, look, you know, we had a product economy, products became commoditized. So then we moved to being a services economy. But the reality is now everyone has some type of service and services um, offerings with their products. So that's not a huge differentiator. They said the next area of differentiation is client experience. And so I think about, you know, what, what happens once the, you close the sale, and by the way, on on uh, Selling from the Heart podcast, which is a podcast I get to co-host with my good friend, Larry Levine, um, you know, we always talk about you don't close a sale, you open a relationship. Yes. So, right. So, and, and I think some of that is borrowed from our friend, Mark Hunter, but, you know, you open that relationship up. So what is, what is it like to be a new client. So you think about like the phases of, of, of this new relationship. There's the onboarding experience. Well, that's a great place to start, by the way, because if you mess up the onboarding experience, you've destroyed your ability to cross-sell. So on the, the flip side of that is if you create a compelling, meaningful, helpful, and enjoyable onboarding experience for your clients, you actually set the table to be able to go back and have all kinds of conversations about 
you know, the next course of the meal <laughs> to use the set the table analogy. But you, you really, I think this is where, you know, the experience of onboarding. And then once you're actually in the, in the routine of being a customer, one of the things that in the technology world, you know, that we always used to do surveys in the industry. And I mean, every year the survey would come back and it would say, basically the customers would say, you never write, you never call. I never hear from you until it's time to upgrade. <laughs> right? You never write, you never call. So what's, what's that experience like as a client and, and what can you do to provide value to deliver insight, to be helpful, to just be present as a company and as a sales rep with your ideal clients throughout their journey as as a client, throughout that experience. So onboarding, and then what happens after that from a marketing standpoint with your client uh, client communication plan, your um, client loyalty plan, you know, what are you doing? What, What cylinders of the engine do you have in place to ensure that you're continuing to add value um, and build goodwill with your clients and then salespeople as well. Um, I'll tell you, if you want a, a, a low hanging fruit, quick strategy that you can implement to help drive cross sell revenue, institute and implement periodic business reviews with your ideal clients. <laughs> yes. you know, you- Wait a minute, Daryl, Amy, why would a, customer be interested in a periodic business review? <laughs> well, they wouldn't be interested in it if the premise of the periodic business review is that you're going to go in there and do a sales pitch on them. <laughs> but they would be interested if they discovered that you were curious about how their goals had changed as a company. You were curious about what problems they were experiencing you are willing to honestly review your performance, and then you are uh, able to go into a discussion with them as a business partner about how they could uh, solve some of these problems that came up or achieve some of the goals that came up in the conversation. And uh, so, what you're saying is, if you're helpful, it's good for the customer. It it's amazing, <laughs> and I, I mean, it's just like such low hanging fruit. And by the way, when you little trick when you combine that with a client loyalty program, which is your excuse to go out and kick off your periodic business review program. Cause you know, you probably hadn't called that customer in two years. Um, when you say, Hey, I want to ex- tell you about our new client loyalty program. And then you say one of the, the new perks for our ideal clients is that we are going to, we would like to meet with you on a quarterly basis to make sure we're in tune with your business strategy in this dynamic marketplace and make sure we are, uh, dialed into the problems you have and and make sure we're going to help you be successful. Who's going to say no to that, right? Know, so yeah. Nobody does it in, anyway. <laughs> yeah. And you get in that cadence and two things immediately start happening. First of all, uh, you have those moments uh, where the client goes, I didn't know you did that. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You're like, oh my goodness. You know, uh, I didn't know you did that. And the second thing that happens is you start getting referrals because who doesn't want to refer their friends in our post-trust world to a company that actually shows up after the fact and delivers and ensures that they're, um, you know, that they are adding value and looking for ways to add more value. I mean, this is the periodic business reviews quarterly, you know, you can 
random, we call them quarterly strategy reviews. We've called them quarterly, whatever your business is, just make up a name for it. Uh, but the idea is, is that you want to go in on a regular basis to your ideal clients. Can't do it for everybody. Um, but to your top 20% clients and that, you know, have the ability to buy everything that you sell and have a conversation with them. And uh, if you, you know, hopefully, hopefully you already started doing this during the, the pandemic and the lockdown, hopefully, but if not get, you know, get your sales team and the goal here, remember on the net new side, the goal was hundred percent coverage on the cross sell side. The goal is 100% management. In other words, every one of our ideal clients gets a periodic business review, for example. Every, you know, might be your, your 100% management um, stat that you're tracking on the sales side. So this is, um, you know, this is the opportunity for, uh, for cross-sell revenue that I've seen, you know, it works so well. Um, just because even if you don't do a good job at it, just the, just the motion of going out and communicating to your current, current clients that you sincerely want to help them and understand where their business is right now, especially in today's marketplace, is incredibly valuable in driving cross-sell revenue. Yes. And this, what you're talking about and all the things we weren't able to get to in this interview are like so many things in every book that's been on the show. You don't have to do this perfectly. <laughs> you just have to do it. You just have to get started. You just have to do it a little bit better than your competition. And you're going to be amazed at the, the difference it makes, which of course, you know, reminds me of the story of when you and your friend are being chased by a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun your friend. <laughs> That's right. But I would, I would take it a step further uh, and say that, yes, we need to do it, but what, it, what actually needs to happen is each one of these things needs to become a process. It needs yes. to become, or for my Canadian friends, a process, something that happens over and over and over again. Um, and so the key thing is whatever you're doing, if you're rolling out a client loyalty program, if you're rolling out a periodic business review or a new prospecting program, whatever, whatever program, you know, cylinder of your growth engine you're rolling out, make sure that it becomes, is built in such a way that it becomes a process, a documented, repeatable process. It doesn't have to be a perfect process because here's the great thing about process. Once it's in place and once it's running consistently, then you can fine tune it, but you can't steer a ship that's not in motion and you cannot improve a, uh, something in your business that isn't a process. So get it going, get periodic business reviews going and then fine tune it along the way, but make sure that that, you know, happens. And, you know, this goes for every component of your revenue growth engine. Yes. And I just have to quote one other thing from the book where you write, Walk through most departments of any company and you will find processes in action. Finance has processes for building and collections. HR has processes for onboarding and firing. Logistics has processes for shipping and receiving. These processes ensure that these key business functions run smoothly. Step into a marketing and sales department and what do you find? In my experience, it is less process-driven and more like the Wild West. Marketing runs some campaigns or hosts an event. Sales managers tell their reps to go make some calls, or maybe they run a blitz. 
Most of these are one-time actions with very little planning or consistency. What if you could put marketing and sales processes (laughs) in place that run with the same producibility as your other business processes? That's great. Yes, it's so true. And that's why in the book, several times you mentioned one of my favorite books, uh, Traction, uh, from the EOS folks, Gino Wickham. So, well, Daryl, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think the the main thing would be to change your mindset about growth and realize that growth happens when you get net new and cross-sell going at the same time. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And when that happens, you're going to see your growth accelerate dramatically. Well said. So true. And I say that because I've seen, like I quoted earlier, so many companies just trying to do one or the other when it really has to be a more holistic thing, whether you have fuel injectors or carburetors. That's so right. What is one thing a listener could do today once they get to work? Well, I guess they're at, maybe they're at work uh, <laughs> at home uh, during the pandemic. But what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the yeah. many ideas from your book? Great question. I, I think going back to the focus message, um, you could hit you know pause in this podcast when it's over and go to your website and and look through the eyes of an ideal client and say, is this resonating with me? Is you know is the message of my company addressing an outcome that an ideal client would want, or is it just self congratulatory? We're the best. We're great. We're awesome. You know, is it is it actually something that is valuable um, because it addresses the outcomes your clients and prospects want? And from there, you know, then put the plan together to go. Okay, I got to I got to figure out how we we flip all this and fix it. Yes. And as I like to say, too many of those websites, they're, they're weeing all over themselves. And what I mean by that is that it's like, we this, we that, <laughs> and, and throw in a lot of extra uh, corporate gobbledygook. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great suggestion. So you've mentioned several books uh, in the course of this interview. What books have most inspired your work and career? Oh, there's so many books. I'm like you, I'm a book junkie, but I'll tell you uh, some books that have inspired me. In the last uh, year in particular, I mentioned one of them, um, which is Customer Experience. Uh, I'm sorry, The Experience Economy by Joseph Pine and James Gilmore, a fantastic book. It's It was one of those books that um, is dense, so full of ideas. Um, and at the end of it, when I got to the last chapter, I, I was sad that it's over. Mm. <laughs> I was sad. Uh, the, an, another book that, that a lot of folks I don't think have heard of yet that I think is pure dynamite is by one of my favorite authors, Mike McCallowitz. And Mike wrote a book that came out a couple of years ago called The Pumpkin Plan. And it is a playbook on how to grow ideal clients. It's just, it's a fantastic analogy about growing large pumpkins. And uh, I think Mike does a a phenomenal job in that book. So I highly recommend um, his book, The Pumpkin Plan, Mike McCallowitz. And I'll give a tip of the hat. If you're in sales, um, especially in the current environment where we're, that we're in, where it is hard to build trust and and nurture relationships in kind of our two-dimensional world of not necessarily being able to go face-to-face. I highly recommend my friend, Larry Levine and Selling from the Heart. It is is a true 
master textbook in developing authentic relationships and such an important thing right now uh, for our friends out there that are in sales. And has he got an updated version of that coming out soon? There is one coming out uh, sometime in the next, uh, I think, 30 to 60 days. There'll be an update on that book. Yeah. Well, you host a podcast with him. Uh, You know, depending upon how you think this interview went, maybe you could put in a good word for, you know. (laughs) We would love to talk with you. And I'd I'd certainly love to continue this conversation, Douglas, on the uh, Revenue Growth Engine podcast, which is our sales and marketing alignment. Oh, wow. I just lost all respect for you. Yeah. I... uh, (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yes, that's that's the other podcast. Uh, you've got you're a you're a, a content machine. And actually, I should mention that there's a link on your in your book and on your website of Daryl Amy's favorite revenue growth books, and it includes the ones you just mentioned and a few others. And I will include a link to that at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any really recent or upcoming books uh, besides uh, Larry's updated uh, Selling from the Heart? books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah. Um, another one that uh, that I just absolutely love, I got to meet the author earlier this year. I just finished my review of this book is called uh, Find Your Yellow Tux. And uh, it's by a guy named Jesse Cole. I think this is one of the best and most fun customer experience books out there. It's It's totally off the wall. This is a guy that bought a failing baseball team in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, almost lost his shirt using traditional marketing techniques. And he flipped it and he said, you know what? We're going fans first. We're going all about the ideal client. And what can we do to turn baseball, which no offense to my good friends who are watching the World Series right now, but most people regard as a slow, boring game and turn it into an incredible entertainment experience. And in his book, Finding Your Yellow Tux, Jesse Cole tells the story of turning a failing baseball team into a team that literally you you couldn't go to a game if you wanted to. They've sold out tickets two years in advance in this venue. And he did it all by, um, by looking at the experience of a fan from the time they drive into the facility to when they leave that night and what can they do to turn that into an amazing entertainment experience. And in that book, he says, you know what? Um, And he says, business, just because it's professional doesn't mean it can't be fun. Mm. In fact, he said, fun is professional. And um, it really, if you want a book that will stretch you as a sales uh, person, marketing person, or if you own a company, run a company, check out Find Your Yellow Tux by Jesse Cole. You should get him on this podcast and interview him. I think it's a dynamite book. I'll check that out. Yeah, sounds great. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, and there will, and there will be many, uh, <laughs> but to your site and uh, to your LinkedIn profile, I hope folks will reach out to you and maybe include a message like, hey, I heard you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a million podcasts out there and Daryl uh, agreed to come on this one. So please thank him for, for being a guest. And there's also um, 
other things at your site that you mentioned in your book that I'm going to include links to, you know, there's like a, a free toolkit and there's even a masterclass that people can can take. So there's a lot of great resources there. And and we'll include links to so people can find the the two podcasts as well. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Revenue Growth Engine, How to Align Sales and Marketing to Accelerate Growth. The author is Daryl Amy. Daryl, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. And as we say at the end of every episode of the Revenue Growth Podcast, I challenge you, let's get going and let's get growing. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, LinkedIn, where business is done. Every marketing campaign starts with one simple question. How do I ensure the people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? And the answer is LinkedIn. To get a $100 advertising credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign, visit linkedin.com slash marketingbook. That's linkedin.com slash marketingbook. Terms and conditions apply. And speaking of LinkedIn, since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever situation you're in, invite me to connect with you on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.